The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I have to admit to you all that I am a little bit bleary-eyed this morning. I stayed up really late reading a book that uh, I'm kind of wild about, and that's a little bit of a pun. Um, our guest today is Mike uh, Mike Bond, and he has written an amazing new book called The Last Savannah. And I was trying desperately to stay awake until about 2 in the morning to finish it, but I still have a ways to go. But it's a tremendous book. It's a work of fiction, but it touches on a very real-world issue that we're going to be discussing today, and that is the poaching of African elephants, the danger that it poses not just to the animals but to the human beings around this illegal activity. And one of the things that's so frightening and so dangerous about this activity is how it's going to fund terrorism. I had no idea until I picked up Mike's book and started doing some more research. The connection between poaching of African elephants and the war on terror that we've been trying to fight and where these these funds are starting to go. I'm so pleased to bring to you all our guest today. As I said, his name is Mike Bond. And uh, welcome to Go Green Radio, Mike. I'm so glad to have you on. Well, thank you, Jill. It's a delight to be here. It's uh, I, I couldn't be happier about being on any program than on Go Green. Um, it's, it's great. I, I do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mike. You know, your book, The Last Savannah, um, is so difficult to put down. You're a great storyteller. And I'd love for you to begin by talking to us about your own experiences in Africa that led to your interest in the plight of wild elephants to begin with. What what caused you to travel to Africa in the beginning? Well, that's a that's a complicated question. It's it's kind of when you're young. Uh, I was 19 the first time I went to Africa, and uh, I had uh, left college for a while because I found college quite boring. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's an enormous difference from <clears throat> a, a college in the states and the wilderness of Africa. And I found the wilderness of Africa much more enjoyable. And, uh, so what, but my first trip was, was basically across the Sahara, uh, across a good part of the Sahara. And, uh, even back in, in, in 5,000 years ago, that was an area that was alive with elephants, giraffes, lions, uh, gazelles, you name it then. And you can see right in, in, in that little metaphor right there that the impact of climate change over time and that now it's desert. But, uh, I did then thereafter, as I was a little older, go back to Africa a number of times and got very much involved in East Africa, which is, it's, it's kind of humanity's ancient homeland. It's the savannah where, uh, over millions of years, we evolved from living in trees, basically, such as chimpanzees were the, the predecessor of chimpanzees, and we, 
uh, evolved over, as I said, millions of years to wander the savanna and change their diet. And uh, so the savanna is is like our ancient home, and it strikes a particular chord when when we're there. We we feel in touch with with our ancient history, and so I love that it's 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 vast, it's beautiful, it's unending, and uh, so that. I, I became in love with that, and of course, then that got me into uh, my love for the. Well, I've always had a love for animals, but my love for the savanna animals, particularly the lions, uh, the cheetahs, the leopards, the elephants, uh, some of the some of the different four-footed ungulates like the wildebeest. It, it's just a. It's it 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 opens your mind. Being on the savanna opens your mind and your heart and your soul to an entirely new level of life, if you wish. That's probably too complicated, but that in a nutshell, Jay, was what caught me, got me going. Uh, and of course, many, many things, even the first times I was in Africa, many things were going wrong. The poaching was already bad. The, the unnecessary killings of all kinds of animals were, was already ongoing. So that was the start of my involvement in many cases. For so many Americans, you know, Africa is a is a distant place that we may only see through National Geographic magazines or more recently, um, I'm kind of hooked on videos that I see from a man that they call the Lion Whisperer. <laughs> and yeah. Some of his YouTube videos are remarkable. Um, but talk to us about how things have changed in the savanna since your first visit when, you know, there, as you mentioned, there were still... Uh, bad things going on, things that were uh, causing strain on the ecosystem there. But what has changed um, up to the present day? Talk to us about that. Well, many things have changed. Um, when I was young, very young in Africa, um, the elephants, the migrations in the fall across Kenya, there, there would be a herd, a single herd would be three miles wide and ten miles long. That would be one herd of elephants moving across uh, one part of Kenya to another, and migration, of course, was natural. It's the way the elephants live. And as as human populations in Africa have totally exploded far more fast than in other areas except parts of Asia. And so what the reason for that is, 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 is as I say in, in the book, The Last Savannah, as a matter of fact, is, is the combination of vastly improved health care plus no family planning of any kind. In fact, under numerous uh, U.S. Uh, administrations, presidential administrations, it has been against the law for U.S. foreign aid to include even education about population control. So you have been, so you have a situation where maybe a farmer and his wife have, have five acres that they're managing to live on, which you can live on in Africa, but they have ten kids. And so each of the kids gets uh, a half an acre. And then they have, uh, that kid tries to survive on that half an acre and, uh, he and his spouse and, or the, or if it's the girl, she and her husband, then they have to live on this half an acre. And when they try to divide that up for their kids, each kid gets, gets a teaspoonful of land. And so you over, you over, uh, you substantially over, over, uh, cultivate it which leads to erosion, water erosion, wind erosion, and pretty soon uh, what used to be 10 acres of farmland is now 10 acres of, of sand and rock. So mm. that is one of the major impacts on Africa, and, the, and the, the poverty that goes with it, Jill, leads to 
people willing to do anything for money to keep their families alive. So, I mean, there's still huge areas of the savannah which are relatively undisturbed, but the pressure on them is enormous as as, uh, shambas, which are farms and little villages, uh, just move into them. The, the mm-hmm. national parks in Kenya, for instance, right now are are being turned into farmland because people need need to eat. I don't mm-hmm. know. If, I mean, that's that's just a couple of the, the changes uh, mm-hmm. that that occur, occur to me in response to your question. Well, it's that's uh, not difficult to um, to imagine. I mean, we see some of the same sprawl going on in the U.S. and some of the uh-huh. same encroachment um, on our wild spaces and um, you know that that seems to be a global problem. You know, going back to your book, The Last Savannah, the fictional character uh, joins a Kenyan military operation to fight elephant poachers, and I'm assuming that his story is inspired by your own experience with Kenyan uh-huh. rangers. And I'd like for you to talk to us about what you did and what you learned during that period of your life. Well, uh, the first time I was working with the rangers, I was still quite young and, and full of uh, young men tend to believe they're never going to they're never going to die, and mm-hmm. so I was full of all of this energy. And, and no matter where you were in, in Kenya, I I was in uh, the first the first hunt we went on after after poachers was in a national park called Meru M E R U. And we we were out in the bush in a couple of jeeps, and uh, you could hear you could hear guns in the distance. So we knew right away what it was. So we we take off and and try to find our way across the savannah in these jeeps because we're trying to go as fast as we can to where the shooting is. And as you get close, you realize that the poachers, of course, with with much better weapons than we had are watching us and that we're walking right into a trap. And so it's then when they start shooting at you, it's very terrifying because they're better armed and and they are on the defensive and it's it's very dangerous. So I guess my first experiences was were, were to wake up to the realization of how very dangerous it is to uh, to go after the poachers. And in fact Many rangers in, in a, a number of different African countries, in South Africa, for instance, Tanzania, uh, uh, as well as Kenya, uh, are, are killed uh, every month by poachers. So um, that was that was the first thing. I, and I was a good tracker. I'd spent a lot of time in my young young days learning to track. And so my job was simply to uh, to track the poachers and. Uh, uh, that again, you're out in front, which makes you the first target. So I would, just to summarize, Joe, I would say my first experience there became very harrowing, very terrifying. But it didn't mean you stopped. It just meant you would try to be careful. Well, you know, in as much as there's significant danger for the human beings who are trying to fight this crime of poaching, um, if you can bear it. Can you describe what poaching means to the animals? I mean, it's not a painless situation. In fact, um, I think there are some folks who think that getting an elephant tusk means, you know, like extracting a tooth. It's uh-huh. not that way at all. If if you can bear it, can you describe the suffering of the animals at the hands of these poachers? Oh, it's atrocious because um, back uh, 15 years ago when I was really involved in the hunting uh, of the poachers, uh, the, the the guns that they use tended to be automatic rifles, assault rifles, such as the AK-47. That's the kind of the gun of choice. 
And that's a small bullet that spins and, and very fast. And it, it it's not at all engineered to kill an elephant. So what happens is is you, uh, not you, but um, the 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 poachers start to they 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 come through the they come through the forest and savanna. The savanna is a combination of open grassland mixed with chunks of forest, and, and um, it's very easy to find the elephants, and, and yet the elephants sometimes don't know you're there. It depends which way the wind is blowing. And then when they start to fire, it's, it's, a, it's a slow death in that it may take 20 or 30 bullets uh, to bring down an elephant. It may, it may be a 10 or 15-minute um, ordeal. The first bullets hit the elephants. Uh, generally, it's a small herd, and, and the poachers are shooting at all of them. So they they start to run and they run away. But they're they're bleeding. They're hungry. They're I'm hungry. They're bleeding. They're terrified. They're in great pain. The poachers, who may be motorized, catch up with them, and there's another round of gunfire, and the elephants run some more. But after four or five of these sessions, the the elephants, which are are at this point and have been in great agony, just can't go on. And the poachers will even, uh, with an axe, will cut this, the uh, the tusk out of the elephant's head without bothering even to wait till it dies. I've seen that happen. And uh-huh. uh, so it's, and, and they will kill the young just because the young keep coming back to where the mother, for instance, is dying, and the young ones will keep coming back and begging and crying. So they just shoot the young ones too. And now, uh, because of the, the worldwide spread of, of atrocious armaments, uh, much of it pushed by the United States, unfortunately, uh, all of these, these hideous little regimes in Africa, all of these kind of weird countries, their armies are, are, have up-to-date weapons, as I said, usually coming from the United States or in the old days was from the Soviet Union. And so the elephants are now being shot with recoilless rifles, with uh, rocket-propelled grenades, and in, even in some countries, more in the Central African area, uh, by are hunted down by helicopters, military helicopters, and shot oh to death from the air, the way wolves are shot in the United States today. So oh it's, it's it's very it's atrocious. It's agony for the elephants, and uh, it's it, I don't know what else to say. In the last savanna. I do describe I describe the the murder of five elephants, uh, starting with a young female, and uh, it, that was from one of the one of the uh, one of the poaching in, in poaching episodes that we we broke into. Mm-hmm. And I have to emphasize to our listeners, the last savanna is is a great story. I, it's um, it's r- beyond moving. I mean, it's just gripping. And I, like I said, I'm kind of bleary eyed this morning. I had trouble putting it down last night, and I'm almost through. You can find the last savanna and some other books that uh, Mike has written on Mike Bond Books. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, more with Mike Bond and more about this issue of poaching and what's going on in the savanna that concerns each and every one of us. There is a relationship. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. News. Opinion. 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 Opinion.
hear me. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guest today is Mike Bond. He's got a brand new book out that I I just think is amazing. It's called The Last Savannah, and it's the tale of a fictional character, but it's based on some of Mike's own experiences joining a Kenyan military operation to fight poaching. And what we're talking about today on Go Green Radio is not just the animal rights issue and the wildlife preservation issue that's involved with um, stopping this illegal poaching, but also its connection to World security. Uh, some of the funding for the tusks that are removed from elephants and rhinoceroses um, are going to a place none of us want it to go. And we'll be talking about that in just a moment. Mike, talk to us about the dramatic impact that poaching is having on the elephant population. Um, is it hyperbole to say that they face extinction in the not so distant future? Oh, no, not hyperbole at all, Jill. It's absolutely true. Um, and we all know that, that populations, too, when you get below a certain level, uh, there's not enough uh, genetic diversity to keep, to keep the population alive. So even if, for instance, one were to have a few elephants and zoos around the world, that's not going to give us the diversity to keep the, the species alive. And back, oh, even as recently as 1970, uh, there were about 10 million af- elephants in Africa. We're, we're only talking about African elephants at this point though the Asian elephant, which is much smaller populations, uh, is even more at risk. Uh, 
and, and since the last 40 years, since 1970, that 10 million elephants has been cut down to now about 400,000, and they're oh. being killed at the rate of about 30,000 elephants a year. Um, and that's not, that's, they're being killed at a much faster rate than they can reproduce naturally. So uh, the, the, the best predictions by uh, World Wildlife Fund and, and a bunch of other organizations is that the, all the elephants in Africa will be gone in 10 years. Oh, that's sickening. I mean, that that's simply, I, I can't even grasp that. That's horrible. Um, yeah, it is. That's, that's just unthinkable. Oh, my goodness. Talk to us as well. We talked about the impact that poaching has on the animals, and that suffering that they are enduring um, is is just horrifying. But how does poaching impact you know, just the innocent, everyday people in Africa, how is their safety and their well-being jeopardized by this criminal activity? Well, it's it's basically destroying any hope of, of many African populations of <clears throat> excuse me, evolving into more productive lifestyles. And that's because I, I'll try to paint a picture of what it's like out there. You... you um, you have the vast savanna, as I mentioned earlier, with the trees and intermixed with forests and beautiful streams and uh, hills and valleys. Uh, and you have in, intermixed occasionally. You have shambas, which are little farms. Sometimes just one 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 enlarged family. Sometimes a whole group. Uh, and they over the past thousands and thousands of years. These people have lived in very close connection with the world around them, and um, there was a balance. <clears throat> the humans, the humans took certain food. They they grew some foods and they killed if, as necessary to feed themselves. But they didn't were not involved in the extermination of species. And the the problem really goes to China in that we have the United States again over the last 20 years. We've sent all our jobs to China, and we don't have much employment at all compared to what we used to have or should have. But as a consequence, Chinese by the millions have become quite wealthy. And over many, many generations, back thousands of years in China and also in Thailand and other East Asian countries, uh, ivory has been a huge status symbol that when you that's how you could tell if somebody was wealthy or of greater status than oneself, perhaps, because there would be, uh, there would be in their home, there would be an, an ivory carving, or they, when you ate dinner at their place, you got ivory chopsticks. Uh, so the, the, there's been an enormous expanse in the market in China for ivory, and such that in the last 10 years, the price of ivory in China, of raw ivory, has gone up 5,000%. That's 50 oh times. So uh, you have this suddenly huge demand. So who's going to fill that demand? Somebody's going to go out and shoot elephants because there's, there's millions and millions of very, very poor people in Africa. And uh, they don't know that the elephants are dying out. They just know there aren't any elephants around where they live anymore. And so they go on the path to try to find elephants. And when they find them, they shoot them, as I was describing earlier. And But they... This results in a total dislocation and a destruction of the local, if you wish, the local network, the local web of human inter interchanges and activities. And 
In addition, whereas in the past a lot of this this uh, ivory uh, illegal ivory taking uh, was was done by small groups and individuals, it's now being it's been taken over by uh, uh, Islamic terrorist groups, and that I, I describe in detail in the last Savannah. And what I would say that that seventy percent. Of the of the murder of, of elephants, which is one every fifteen minutes, an elephant in Africa dies every fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. All of this is going to the funding of uh, a terrorism, like Al Shabab, which is which just means in Arabic that just means the youth or the young men. Uh, that's the terrorist group that 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 organized that horrible uh, mass murder in the Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi about three months ago. And uh, a place where my wife and I used to take our kids all the time. Um, mm. That um, that that group is almost entirely funded by uh, uh, illegal by blood ivory. And so, I'm sorry, Jill. I'm probably no. Go right ahead. I was just going to say. So, what used to be <clears throat> I don't want to call it innocent, but a disconnected involvement uh, of of the small groups of poachers who would then sell the bloody tusks. To um, to middlemen or middle people who would arrange uh, with corporate uh, corporate government officials to see that these uh, tusks were not in, in, were not included in shipping manifests, but would then be put on ships and sent to uh, either uh, Bangkok or Japan or uh, China. So mm-hmm. the, the difference is that it, it's completely dislocated and, and destroyed the web of community in the small Savannah villages. And in addition to that, these villages also, in many ways, are largely dependent on tourism. Uh, whether you're uh, uh, a minibus driver or a guide or in, in a you work in a restaurant or a hotel where the tourists come and stay, and there's some marvelous hotels throughout places like Kenya and Tanzania, South Africa, Botswana. Uh, all of that that local economy is destroyed because there's no more elephants. Tourists want to come see elephants. And, they, of course, the poachers at the same time, they kill lions when they see them. They kill uh, cheetahs, uh, leopards, uh, gazelles, uh, wild, wildebeest, anything. Um, so the, the tourism and also the state of war, because when you go to a national park now, you're likely to hear what sounds like a, ba- a firefight from Vietnam. <clears throat> and it's just... It's just poachers killing elephants. So what it does is it takes away entirely the economic basis of these communities. So those are two of the uh, that's two of the uh, impacts on local communities in in Africa. I mean, it sounds like basically this is organized crime coming in. Um, you know, it's it's gone from a few individuals doing this to a syndicate. And I read somewhere just recently that that they think that ivory sales could be worth as much as ten billion dollars annually. I mean, that's right up there with drug trafficking and all of the other horrible illegal crimes that bring money into some of these organized crime units. Help us understand clearly this path from the tusk uh, coming off of the elephant to terrorism. If you could clearly define these steps so that everybody has this crystallized in their mind. How do we go from the animals happily drinking at a water hole to terrorists buying guns with the money that they made from the tusk? Exactly how does this work? Well, it works in a number of steps. And if, if and I'll just, for instance, give you uh, 
an example, a real example of, um, again, thinking of a waterhole. And waterholes tend to be a, a place where elephants are poached because uh, they, they, they gather there for water and they bathe and they, they cover themselves with, they spray each other and themselves with water. So it's, elephants need water. So it's, it's a place where the poachers uh, will automatically congregate. So supposing you have eight or nine elephants uh, there watering and you have uh, seven to ten poachers, each with an AK-47 or an elephant rifle and, and uh, plenty of ammunition. So to kill that many elephants will take about ten minutes in terms of repeated uh, hitting them with bullets. Um, so the elephants are down and dying. And the poachers come, and as I said, with axes, they will chop the tusks out of the elephant's head or mm. use a chainsaw to do the same thing. Some of them have chainsaws. And as I said, too, some of the elephants are still alive when this happens. And so at this point, you either need uh, some form of transport. So if now they're likely to have a pickup truck, a couple of pickup trucks, uh, yeah, Toyota pickups are very much the uh, the favorite for no particular reason, but... Uh, so they load the tusks into the back of a truck or a couple of trucks or jeeps, or in some cases, uh, they will load them on the camels. If camel is a beast of burden throughout uh, the drier parts of North, North and East Africa, and they then off they go to the next major town. And by the time they get to the next major town, maybe 20, 50 miles away, there's a storage, there'll be a, there'll be a warehouse somewhere. Um, and they're stored there, and the people that run the warehouse then transport them in covered trucks, larger trucks, um, to wherever the nearest coastal town is, or a gathering town, like in Uganda, for instance. There's gathering towns where the tusks are brought together, and Uganda doesn't have any ports on the ocean. So from there, they're given false business manifests. Um, so you, at this point, it's going to be like a large truck or even a small trailer truck. <clears throat> with this false business manifest that may say that this is legally cut timber or this uh, this is they'll they'll find some or it's it's pineapples or it's something and so off it goes with the driver the driver takes it toward a major port and for instance one of the largest ones is Mombasa in uh, Kenya and or Dar es Salaam in in, in Tanzania and they. They go to the port, they drive to the port, and they, it goes, and everybody's getting paid at this point. So by the time that the, the truck gets to uh, Mombasa, by the way, uh, it's it's gone through a couple of checkpoints, and the, the people in the checkpoints may have been given 10 bucks or 20 bucks apiece uh, to look the other way or to sign off on this false manifest. And so it, then it, it ends up uh, in, in, in a port and is transferred onto a ship, and it heads for Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the major entry port into China for uh, illegal tusks. And so it gets to, it, it goes across the Indian Ocean, gets to, to China. And again, illegally, it is it is brought into China as it, it's misidentified as something else and brought into China, whereby, again, it's warehoused and, and sold at auction to uh, a variety of groups that, Whose job is to uh, is is to gather the ivory, and from there, it's it's uh, it's sold to individual processors. There may be many individual, hundreds of them. In fact, you, on, online you can go anywhere online in China, and there are people offering to sell blood ivory. And in fact, even Google 
uh, Google in, in has over 10,000 sites that sell blood ivory, even in the United States. So uh, that's that's the process, and the enormous amount of money that's made is made between the port of Mombasa and Hong Kong. So that, at that that point, you've got the major criminal syndicates coming in and the terrorist groups. Mombasa, for instance, in Kenya, uh, used to be kind of an, an open port, and it's now been largely taken over by Islamic fundamentalists as there's an enormous expansion of Islamic fundamentalism in, in Africa. And so <clears throat> these people just take the money that comes back from China and use use it or the or the sh- in return for the tusks being shipped to China, there's a shipment of uh, Chinese AK forty sevens with with uh, plenty of uh, of um, bullets that come back and it's just a trade. But so Oh my! Um, you know, I and mean, you can't fight terrorism if you can't uh, shut off the the funding that goes right. for the, those weapons of uh, that they've got in their hands. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break. I'm overwhelmed, but anxious to hear more. So, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We've been talking about the illegal poaching of elephant tusks in Africa. 
we talked about where those tusks end up right before the break and how the extreme amount of money, I mean, these are really uh, being sold at a high, high price, where that money goes and how it filters back into African-based terror organizations. And, you know, it reminds me of something that's a little bit unrelated, but it's still a form of organized crime. You know, we, we hear so much in the United States about the Mexican drug cartels and how much violence and how much money is involved with um, selling drugs in the United States and what's happening um, to the villages and the, the towns in Mexico as a result. And similarly, this demand for ivory in some Asian countries like China and Japan, Vietnam, Thailand, etc., is fueling all this violence in Africa. And, you know, it, it strikes me as a, a very similar problem that those Asian countries and, and leaders and thought leaders have there that we have here in the United States. If people weren't buying the drugs here, you know, there wouldn't be all of the, the weaponry and, and fuel for the violence that's happening in Mexico. Similarly, were there not such a demand for the ivory in countries like China, there wouldn't be a market. There wouldn't be an opportunity to sell those and hence a reason to, to kill these animals and poach the tusks to begin with. Mike, what are nations like China and Japan doing to curb the demand for ivory in their countries? Well, that's a good question, and, and um, China is by far the world's largest consumer of blood ivory. I think I mentioned earlier, sadly, the United States is the second largest in the world, ahead of both Japan and Thailand. Mm. Uh, but it, 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 So let's talk about the two largest uh, consumers of blood ivory, China and the United States. China has for many years refused to even admit that there was any connection between uh, its market for ivory and the violence in Africa. And lately, they're beginning to change a little bit. Again, the Chinese approach to the environment, as we all know, is, is ridiculous. They, it's, it, the entire nation of China is an environmental tragedy and one that is simply polluting the world, But as well as, as taking away all our fisheries and uh, Slowly, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of awareness in China as as kind of window dressing. About three weeks ago, the Chinese government burns uh, a little over six tons of confiscated ivory, but uh, and they're now uh, they're now beginning to talk about the possibility of criminal charges for uh, those people caught uh, caught selling ivory. But it's not against the law in China to import ivory, and what they say is that, oh, this is all legal stuff. Of course, there's no more legal killing of elephants anymore, except a little bit in South Africa, mostly by uh, U.S. and European game hunters. Um, so so uh, the Chinese are beginning to move in the proper direction, and there's some hope that they will change this. A couple of well, well-known uh, Chinese media people who were trying to uh, educate the the, the Chinese consumers about this because the the talk out in China is that that the tusks are not coming from dead animals that that elephants shed their tusks every year and that, that, that so these tusks that are going into China are nothing more than than what is shed the way a, a, a deer or an elk will shed its horns. Now that's changing. It's not changing fast enough. One thing recently happened is the European Union just overwhelmingly a couple of days ago, 
consider ivory and all other forms of wildlife uh, poaching as serious crimes. So they now have, have a structure, a criminal structure to, uh, to prosecute these crimes, and that will make a difference. We need to do the same thing in the United States, which we're not doing. Uh, it's not a crime in the United States, really, in many areas, well, I'm going to say in many areas, that you, you can easily evade uh, prosecution in the United States for ivory, uh, for, for the owning or, or uh, commercializing uh, blood ivory. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so it's beginning to change a little bit. The Chinese need to, the Chinese need to make it a serious criminal offense. And then in Africa, the, the, uh, the, the sentence for ivory poaching over many years has been like a charge, a charge of $10. So you're caught with, with a hundred, well, $20,000 worth of ivory. And they let the ivory through, and then they charge somebody ten dollars. Um, so, so that that's all going to change. It's going to change on many, many levels, and there, there there are attempts within international groups to bring about that change. So, well, speaking uh, but, of that that group of of international folks, you know, just. I guess it was maybe September of last year at the Clinton Global Initiative, the centerpiece issue that Hillary and her daughter Chelsea brought to the forefront was this issue of illegal poaching. And and they made a commitment to, you know, to get behind this issue, to stop it, to bring together some partnerships. Um, How significant do you think her involvement will be? I mean, she pledged to use her ties uh, that she formed over the years of being our Secretary of State um, to combat mm-hmm. this issue. What does that signal to you in terms of our hope that this issue is is going to be handled better than it has been? Well, that, it was it was a very strong and it was a very strong initiative. I mean, the Clinton Global Initiative is is trying to grapple with some of the major major issues of facing the world today. Um, I think it had a very significant effect. She has been, she has been, to my knowledge, pursuing this in terms of contacting African and European governments, and I'm, sh- I'm sure she's had a hand in the European Union's recent uh, decision, as I said, to criminalize uh, ivory, ivory uh, uh, commerce. Uh, how much, how far that goes, I don't know. I'm a little suspicious of all political people in that. Um, <laughs> They talk the story like like our president talked the story about the importance of stopping all of this, but he's done nothing whatsoever to even crack down in the United States. So, I, I hope I hope it makes a difference because what we need, if you look at what we need, Joe, we need it on several levels. We need we need proper enforcement in the field, which is extremely difficult. We're talking about huge areas that need to be covered, and we don't even know for sure how many elephants are out there. Paul Allen, the uh, co-founder of uh, Microsoft, has funded now, is just funding an effort uh, of flyovers throughout all of the areas of Africa that still have elephants to try to get a count, because we're not even sure how many elephants are left. So we need to count them to know where they are, we need to know where they are, and then we need to have armed forces in the field, and that's what, what I was doing years ago. And now the British government is doing, again, what is in the last Savannah, in my book. Uh, they're training the rangers, but the trouble is, a ranger makes ten bucks a month, and and he's got a family to support, and he goes he goes into the bush after the poachers, and the chances are pretty good he's going to get killed. So he's we're not enforcing things on the ground. We need boots on the ground in a true military sense. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. And then we need to control all of the African governments, almost without exception, 
the, the, the politicians are fully involved in, in, the, in the poaching, uh, the commercial end of it. They're the ones who make sure that the ship doesn't get looked at by uh, border control. They're the ones that, that <clears throat> arrange a lot of these things. And at one point in the Kenyan, there was at one point a Kenyan president whose sister was the largest exporter of tusks to China from Kenya. So it's it's rotten at most levels of government. So you, first of all, you need to enforce it on the ground, then you need to enforce it governmentally, and then you need to have international. This isn't one of the problems with our, our evolving world, is that we need far more international criminal prosecution. So, And then you've got to, as you said earlier, Joe, which is wonderful, you've got to make the buying population aware of the tragedy and the crime that they're abetting. So those those are the four steps, and certainly the Clinton Global Initiative has has been wonderful. The UK government has been wonderful. They are strongly leading this, the attempt to control this. Uh, the French government, of course, is always very pro environment, so they too are very much involved. So well, and it's interesting. Well, we do, and it's it's interesting. You know, their environmental issues, you know, become so politicized even when there's really no need but interestingly even the the army general who used to be head of the central command in africa has been getting involved in this issue he sees what you were talking about this need for military involvement because he sees the the connection between poaching and the guns that are aimed at at people you know with these terrorist mm-hmm. groups and how they are able to use this yeah. this funding and so he's been involved so you know for all of those folks who may be a little bit on the fence about environmental issues but you know have support our troops bumper stickers on their on their cars you know this is another way to support our troops when it's it's another avenue of fighting terror we've got to take a quick commercial break but when we come back much more with Mike Bond and his terrific new book that i really highly recommend called The Last Savannah don't go away folks There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you're just now tuning in, no worries. Um, we, we will have an archive broadcast of this show up in just a, a little bit, and you can catch the rest of it. Our guest today is Mike Bond, and I want you to go out to his website because in addition to his new book, The Last Savannah, he has many other books. And if you go to www.mikebondbooks.com, you can check out uh, his array of terrific stories. He's a he's an exciting and thrilling storyteller, and I am really enjoying the book, The Last Savannah. We've been talking about an issue that seems so far away, uh, you know, illegal poaching in Africa. Um, tragedy on every level spans the African continent and, and involves the Asian continent. But, Mike, talk to us about why the average American, you know, Joe and Jill everyday person why should they care about this issue what does this have to do with us oh that's a really good question Jill because it has so many it has to do with us in so many ways uh, on the on the deepest level on the deepest level as 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 living beings uh, we we are all connected and uh, it's it's my it's my belief that 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 every living creature is is a cell in in the great universe of life whether it's a butterfly or a human being or an elephant or a paramecium, uh, we're we're all we're all alive, and the the loss of one part of life damages us all. So at the deepest level, that's important. Plus, the human being has to look at herself, or the people have to look at themselves, and and say, "Who am I? What am I like?" And to know that you have allowed the destruction of some of the most magnificent animals that ever walked the face of the earth. It leads to a sub, a, a sub sense of guilt, if you wish, and an awareness that human beings are, are not a productive and positive impact on the planet. And, and that, that's a harmful thought, too. We need to see ourselves as beneficent, not as, as the cause of tragedy. And in addition, if there are many people who do go to Africa, and, and to, to see these magnificent animals, and they won't go when the animals are gone. So that opportunity is, is lost as well. I think it's the self-image of the human being that's most harmed. I mean, the same way that, that World War II and, and the Holocaust certainly impacted our view as humans of who we are. To create this environmental show, this environmental Holocaust, is is equally damaging to our self-esteem and and. To, to our inner and, and, and our inner and total morality, if you wish. I don't. Those are a few possible answers, Jill. I'm not sure I've touched on as well as I should. Well, I think that that does give us a, a beautiful um, picture. The, the flip side of that coin of what we could be if we get involved and we care about these issues. For the sake uh-huh. of our listeners who do want to get involved, what are some concrete, some meaningful and impactful actions that they could get? involved with to actually take a stand to be part of the solution for this noble cause 
Well, there's a number of good things to do. I mean, joining uh, certain environmental organizations is extremely helpful. World Wildlife Fund is, is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, to 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 spread the word, to spread the word, and to 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 go to reach out to our, our political representatives, our politicians. The, the the government in the United States now is kind of de- degenerated into a, a, a corporate political corrupt. Uh, miasma, and we need to get our representatives back representing and dealing with real issues. So, so to reach out to to reach out to our political representatives is, is also very important. Uh, to uh, I would say those are three, and, and to get in touch with with all of the different uh, elef- elephant safe uh, protection groups that are out there. To, to contribute to that, uh, just to go online, just go online and, and, and look at some of the different groups that are out there, and uh, uh, there's there's just so many really important ones. The International Fund for Animal Welfare is, is another one. Uh, the Elephant Orphanage Project is is is, is another one. Um, that I, I rather than just go through all of these wonderful groups, I think uh, the, the answer is to to self-educate oneself, or also read. If if you do happen to read the last of that on my book, there's there's plenty of information in there about what to do next. And so those would be various options that I might recommend, Joe. And well, also, you know, by the way, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say, if you do go to my website, mikebarnbooks.com, there's specific information on elephant tragedies on my site. So uh, that gives more information. Well, you know, your book, The Last Savannah, is a great example of using media other than just the news organizations that we often get our information from to raise awareness on this issue. But, you know, in the age of social media, we all have a way of using our own, you know, platforms, whatever it may be, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, to be part of media, to be part of raising awareness. Can you envision other uses of media and communication tools that could help to pique the attention of everyday people for this issue? That's a wonderful question. And I wanted to touch on one of the things you said at the start of this, that question, which is why I write uh, I've written a lot of non nonfiction too about wildlife and, and environmental issues. Uh, but why I write novels is that I learned very young that that nonfiction doesn't tend to create an emotional response in the reader. Whereas if you can, what I tried to do in the last Savannah and with all my books is I try to put the reader right exactly where I am. In other words, if I'm in the midst of being shot at by elephant poachers, I want the reader right there with me. If I'm tracking a dying elephant through the brush, I, I want the reader there. Um, if I want to, I want to give this, this this deep emotional experience to the reader because once you get emotionally involved, once you care on, a, on an emotional level, you're far more likely to do something, and you're far more likely to be committed to to, to making a change. So, as you said. Uh, social media is, is is also a marvelous way. I try to reach out to get people emotionally involved, and uh, <clears throat> social media is a perfect platform for that because it does allow each of us individually to have a say. And um, contacting uh, the the various environmental groups is significantly important uh, where one can to add to their efforts, either financially or some other way. Um, to 
to spread the word family-wise. It, 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 it all helps. All communication has the potential of becoming viral. And mm -hmm. so I love that word. I don't like viruses, but I love the <laughs> idea that, that awareness can be viral, Jill. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't really, I mean, there was a marvelous movie several years ago uh, uh, called Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio. And it was mm -hmm. a brilliant movie because Af Africa is also being devastated by diamond mining, all of which uh, illegal diamond mining as well. So um, we, it would be wonderful if we had to put movie out there on on the whole elephant poaching thing. And it's not just, I said earlier, it's not just the elephants, it's the lions and the, and the leopards and cheetahs and all of the various types of antelopes. All of them are just getting hammered to death. And uh, so just spreading the word every way we can. Well, and I think that this issue provides a great collaboration opportunity because there's an entry point for people who are who care about the environment, who care about wildlife conservation, people who care about human rights and anti-terrorism efforts. All of these hooks this issue provides for people to come together. And I think that, you know, when we when we stop seeing issues like this in terms of silos, like this is just a wildlife preservation issue, when we see it as something broader, um, we can bring more people into the discussion than we might otherwise if it were labeled just under one heading. And so I want to thank you, Mike, for joining us on Go Green Radio, for doing all that you are to raise awareness about this issue. I love your book, The Last Savannah. What, a, what an enthralling story, an important story. And I hope that our listeners will get out on www.mikebondbooks.com and check it out. And, and Mike, we'll have to have you back on another time. Um, folks, we are going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, I hope you'll research this topic, share it with your friends on Facebook, and do something in your life to go green. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.